The music you just heard was composed by Sigmund Schul while he was a prisoner at the Terezin concentration camp. There happened to be numerous artists who were imprisoned at Terezin in the years 1941 to 1945. Among them was Victor Ullman, who was both a very talented composer and a music critic. You will learn about Ullman and some of the other accomplished artists who lived under the constant threat of deportation to Auschwitz. Their story will be told by Mark Ludwig, who is an accomplished musician himself and recently published a beautifully documented book called Our Will to Live, with Victor Ullman as the focal point. Mark will also detail his discovery of this fascinating history and the goals of the Terezin Music Foundation. At the end of the episode is a discussion of the composer Schoenberg and the style of atonality which strongly influenced Ullman and the others composing in Terezin. So I'd like to welcome Mark Ludwig to the People Hidden History podcast series. I'm very excited for him to share the story of Victor Ullman, also his foundation, etc. But first, Mark, if you can give us a little backstory on who Victor Ullman was. So Victor Ullman uh, was certainly one of those people that fall into the category of a Renaissance person. Uh, this was a person who um, was steeped in literature, uh, drama, art, all the different mediums of art, philosophy. And first and foremost, I would say, um, one of the um, outstanding composers of his generation. He was also a pianist and a composer, a teacher and a critic. And, and so what we have through our will to live is the first complete English translation of the critiques that he wrote in Terrazin concentration camp. And in those critiques, he brings us into this world, this rich world of um, concerts, which is unimaginable in an environment of a concentration camp. And through these critiques, as we will investigate in your program, you, one really sees the, the broad breadth of his intellect because he's bringing in, you know, quotes from philosophers, from artists, political figures. He weaves this in. And, and, and so the, not only do we have the richness of the cultural um, community that existed in this concentration camp, it is paired with, if you will, with the richness of Ullmann's intellect. Ullmann had been a student of Arnold Schoenberg, so he was within that Schoenberg Viennese circle. And as probably many of your listeners know, that period in, in the early part of the 20th century and Viennese culture was incredibly rich with, in, in music and literature and in painting. And so here was Ullmann right in the mix, right in the thick of that mix, if you will. That's a really good summary. And of course, I've read The Will to Live and what I see in the critiques, he does blend in not just the music, but the culture and the writing. There's a very complete picture, like you're saying, of what the culture was at that time. So let's talk about time frame. Certainly, Mark, you've said that Victor was very established in his career, unfortunately, before he was interred in the concentration camp. Can you give us the timeline, maybe of the years of his career, and then when he was uh, sent to the concentration camp? Well, this, this was uh, a person who showed tremendous talent at an early age. 
Um, but he also served in World War I. And as, um, as you know, there were so many artists who also served on both sides in World War I. And, and in the impact of those experiences, the trauma of being on the battlefront and being in the trenches, as one would expect, would affect and influence you know, their expression, if you will. After um, the war, Uman studied briefly with Schoenberg, and he was within the Schoenberg circle because he studied with Zemlinsky, who was Schoenberg's brother-in-law. Uh, he was close with Berg, another student and disciple of Schoenberg. And through the 20s, Ullmann was establishing himself as a, a conductor and a composer of great promise. He also was very spiritually inclined and became a disciple of Rudolf Steiner from the Anthroposophical Movement. Um, then in the 30s, life is turbulent for him. You know, he's in one way, he's searching for his voice, his signature voice as a composer. And that's also woven into his spiritual search. He's in Stuttgart. He's actually working and work, running an uh, anthroposophical bookstore. When the Nazis come into power, he flees. He ends up in Prague. And there he's trying to eke out a living. And um, this is really a tough time for him. But also as a composer, it's a good time for him because he's found his stride, if you will. And he's composing, he's giving piano lessons, he's a critic. And then, of course, with the Nazis invading Czechoslovakia, occupying Prague, his life really takes a dramatic change and a dramatic turn. And he's trying to get his family out, and he can't, unfortunately. Only, in fact, two of his children are able to get on a kinder transport to the UK. It's the very last one. A third child cannot make it because he's in quarantine with his mother. And as a result, uh, they are all sent to Terezin, and then they eventually are murdered in the gas chambers of Auschwitz. But I want to take us back a moment where when Ullmann is in Terezin, here he is um, one of the towering figures in the cultural activity of this camp. And I think we should maybe briefly talk about Terezin itself, because maybe for some of your listeners, they're hearing cultural activities in a concentration camp. And that that should raise our attention, our eyebrows, if you will, that here's a concentration camp that served as one, a collection point for Jews in occupied German and German hands and to be eventually sent to Auschwitz for extermination. It would later serve as a propaganda vehicle to try to dispel word of the final solution. And so here is a camp that, if one can imagine, the richness of intellectual activity, the intellects there, these people who are being brought in from major cities, from Germany, Austria, Holland. These are figures that uh, excelled in the arts and in sciences. And initially, uh, when they when this garrison town, and Terezin was a garrison town that dated back to the late 1700s, it was converted into a concentration camp in late 1941 by the Nazis. And within the first couple of transports, there was this sort of secret activity of, of cultural act, moments or evenings, if you will, 
in in the barracks, usually occurring in the basements or the attics of the barracks. And when the Nazis found out about it, then there was a policy of establishing it and a, a way of controlling the prisoners. And there was an off-on relationship of tolerating this, and then eventually it would be used or co-opted in 1944 for propaganda purposes. But what I find is so extraordinary that before that period of trying to use this for propaganda purposes, here were people that were performing, they were trying to rehearse after in an environment of deprivation, overcrowding, um, lack of adequate medical care, and then the uncertainty of their existence. Would they be put on a transport? And they were witnessing this because friends, loved ones, those in their barracks were being sent on transports to the east. And so what you find in Our Will to Live is a, I'd say, through the eyes of Victor Oman, the prisoner, we are brought into the world of the performances given by the prisoners. And alongside that are over 250 images of artwork that was created by the prisoners that are connected to these cultural activities. So side by side, you, you get a sense of not only the outstanding performance quality of these performances, but the, the, the quality of the art that was created and the music. And so this is a, a multidimensional experience in uh, when one opens up our will to live, because you're on one level, you're reading the critiques, being taken into a given performance. Then you also see artwork, perhaps a poster or two, or a photograph of something connected to the artists that were performing or that particular performance. And then there are also musical soundtracks that one can listen to that are part of this book. And I just want to draw your attention quickly to those soundtracks. These in, include vintage recordings by survivors from Terezin, as well as from very distinguished artists from the Boston Symphony Orchestra, the Hawthorne String Quartet, and then there's also Yo-Yo Ma involved. So these are very unusual and, uh, I'd say, premier recordings that are being made public that go side by side with the visual experience of the art and with Ullmann's critiques. And, and I have to emphasize, Ullmann does something rather extraordinary. He's a beautiful writer. He's very engaged. You can tell he, he shows great respect and admiration for his fellow uh, artists and prisoners in the camp. And he takes us in and, and brings us into knowing we're getting to know some of these personalities, some of the people, what are their strengths? What are the things he wishes for them? You know, and, and, and if I can yeah. interrupt just a second, sure. Mark, I think he plays the role of a true critic, even though they're in this incredible environment where any of them could get transported any day to Auschwitz. He does play the role of a critic and he does truly critique. He talks about some of the good aspects, maybe some ways that he thinks the performances could be improved. And that that impresses me. Please continue. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it raises a question. You look at these critiques. Who is he writing for? Because this is not going into a daily installment of a newspaper like we're accustomed to. And he knows this. And there, I, I believe, just as in his musical manuscripts, there's a hope that there's a future audience. And it's a testament. And 
for us to go and partake, to bring us in. So these are very unusual critiques. You know, this is very different from what we're accustomed to when we would open the newspaper or let's say we now get online. In most cases, we do that. All right. And we want to find out about the latest concert, show, recording or book review, et cetera. And the other thing is, is with Ullman, wow, does he take us on a journey? Because on any given critique, he not only notes who was performing and, and their, their strengths, but he gives you some background on the pieces that were programmed. And then sometimes he weaves it in with a, not only uh, wit, he has some wit about it, and there's a special warmth. You can feel that there's a real connection with these people on the stage and a gratitude, if you will, for what they're doing amidst the horrors of being in a concentration camp. We are inserting at this point a composition by Victor Ullman with a commentary by Mark. So we've been talking about the critiques of Victor Ullman, but then there's Victor Ullman, the composer, and his third string quartet, a work he composed in Terezin, to me is um, a window into the landscape of what he experienced in this camp of where he was. In a sense, there's as much a musical and psychological portrait. And the opening of the quartet has this nostalgic lyricism about it. Looking back on a better time, a safer time, the time of elegance and refinement and where the arts were valued and where humanity was valued as well. I think that what I want to emphasize, again, is what you said and what is recorded in this book, because the artwork, his critique, you really get a sense of almost being there with these people. It it is Mm. such a sense of immediacy and it's multiple layers. I mean, this incredible creativity, but then again, hanging over their heads is the constant threat of being deported. And he described, I think it was one artist as a shooting star. Maybe you could talk about that, because that to me describes so beautifully everybody who lived there during this time, you know, blazing beautifully and bright with the threat of death. Right. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because in, in this particular critique, it's and it's a rather ominous moment because he, he writes about a, um, a group of young performers, 
Uh, it's entitled the Klein, Kling, and Mark Piano Trio. Those are the last names of the members of the trio. And he, he states, the peculiar fate of our chamber music societies has the quality of a meteor. It briefly flashes promisingly and then disappears. In each new case, it is only to be desired that it may be different this time. At this time, it would be particularly disappointing if there would be only a promise without a consequence. And here, he he knows what, what may lie in store for these people. And in fact, I, I will connect you to... You'll, you'll notice in this book, there are over 500 footnotes. And part of that is that each person that is noted in, in this series of critiques, I try to give you background of their lives so that you could read Gideon Klein. Who was Gideon Klein? And here was this young man who was a composer, a conductor, a pianist. In fact, the, the survivors referred to him as our young Leonard Bernstein. Right? And to know, what did he do before the war? And what were some of the things he did in Terrazine? And there are a few people that did survive, very few, what they did subsequently. But it, it's the other thing that I uh, add the transport numbers of each of these people and the transports that they were placed on. And, and I tried to make a point of it because here were these human beings. They had a name. They had an identity. But then the Nazi regime stripped them of it and assigned them a number. It was the dehumanization of these people by a tyrannical regime. It was making them the other. And, and so Ullmann notes, you know, that the meteoric rise, they're, they're meteors, they're a flash across the sky. Will they last? Will they be among us to give us more? And in fact, this is the, the tragedy when you're opening up the book on one side, you know, one side you're really inspired, or I hope one is so inspired by the power of the arts, what they play what they played not only for these prisoners, the role, but what it does for us today, why it is so vital. Right? You know, for these prisoners, it was a source of hope, defiance, you know, and, and what creativity meant for these people. Why, did, why were they so driven? You know, Oman, he writes, I would only like to emphasize that my musical work was fostered and not inhibited by Theresienstadt, and that we in no way merely sat around lamenting by the banks of Babylon's rivers, and that our desire for culture was equal to our will to live. And that's from where the title of this book, Our Will to Live, the importance of art, the importance of attending a program, the importance of playing music, right? And, and so then to open this book is to hopefully bring us into this rich, rich world. You know, Ullmann invites it to his, to his writings, but then you have the artists and they're so beautifully rendered. Um, and, you know, that, and even the making of this book is another story, which I hope we have a little time that I can share with you. We, we will discuss in a moment. 
you brought up a very good point that you added a lot of supplemental information in terms of who these people are. So it's not only their critiques of Omen and, and the artwork, and that gives you a sense of immediacy, but you giving the background adds another layer of richness. And again, the research you did in, in terms of, uh, of the who's and when's of the deportation to Auschwitz and that it just gives such a rich, complete picture. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, I with having, you know, one would maybe ask why go to the minutia of the transport train numbers and the transport numbers to each individual. But I, I think it shows also the extent to which the Nazis were so determined to have what they were a final solution. Right. And the, the scope, the scale of this killing machine. You know, and to do that. So side by side, you see you, you're, you're they're butting their heads of creativity against oppression. And let's go back in time a little bit in terms of the backstory of how you connected actually with some of these survivors and maybe tell our listeners of how a lot of these materials were saved, because that to me is a fascinating story. So I was um, in a bookstore. And um, I, I had this sort of ritual when I would come into New York before we'd, we'd have uh, concerts at Carnegie Hall. You know, depending on how much time I had, maybe I'd go to the museum. But I, a lot of times when you're pressed for time, I would go into the Strand Bookstore, for example. And I, on one occasion, came across a book. It was a biography on Rabbi Leo Beck, one of the great progressive rabbinical figures. And he was incarcerated in Terezin. So in reading this biography, there, there's a section on his incarceration. And it refers to performances given in his concentration camp. And that music had been composed there. So this is amazing to me. And it mentions Victor Ullmann as one of those composers. So I'm struck by this on a couple of levels. Here I am at this at the time of reading this book. I've already been in the Boston Symphony for a good five, six years. I come from a, a very accomplished family in classical music. And being in the Boston Symphony, I'm, I feel I'm fairly well connected within classical music circle. And here, I, yeah, I, this is the first that I'm coming into contact knowing uh, that music was created in Terezin. I'm struck by this. And I had never heard of Victor Ullmann at the time. So now I, my, you know, my interest has peaked and I, at the same time, had a chamber music series in the Berkshires and, and um, sort of the mission of this series was to try to have programming that wasn't just only the standard old warhorses for repertoire, right? If anything had survived of this music, perhaps because this could make for an interesting program. So I'm, I'm poking around, not, not coming up with anything, uh, but Terezin is located northwest of Prague. It's roughly, I'm going to say, a uh, 45-minute-to-hour drive or nowadays. And I decided, go to Czechoslovakia, go to Prague. I had one contact, which at that time, this was the Czech Musical Fund. All right. So this is the great repository of all Czech music. And in that period, I, I, in that visit, I should say, I spent time 
not only in, in there, but at the Czech Music Fund, but I went to the archives at Terezin and the Jewish Museum. Uh, I was introduced to survivors. And I, when I first had that experience of opening up a score, I mean, I was thunderstruck because this was music that I, I did not, you know, I, not knowing of any of these composers, I had no idea what would be the, the quality of the music, you know, and the styles. And here I'm, I'm finding not only is there a Victor Ullmann, there's a Gideon Klein, there's a Pablo Haas, Hans Kraza, just to name a few. And I am now being opened into a new world for me of composers. This is tremendously exciting. I mean, I still get chills thinking about it. Introduced to new voices, each one having their own style, right? And of such an outstanding quality. And then you find there's no mystery to it because when you learn of their background, Haas, who studied with Leos Janacek, we mentioned Ullmann was Schoenberg Circle, right? Cross the study was Zemlinsky. You see in the mix these composers that they were that next generation of major voices to come onto the scene. They were already showing great, great pro uh, promise. You have a Hans Krasa. Turned out that in the mid-1920s, the Boston Symphony and the Philadelphia Orchestra had performed his chamber orchestra symphony. So they're... they're on the cusp of, of, you know, becoming known. And then here they are silenced by the Nazis. And these are composers that they had already left us some music before their incarceration, but what they wrote during was also just not only of amazing quality, the power of their voices and the variety of emotions and color styles uh, that these were new worlds brought back to us, if you will. Uh, and, and again, you know, not to sound repetitive, but, you know, you have the inspirational qualities that, like I say in the book, but in the music, you, one is inspired and touched, but there is also that dark side where you realize these were composers whose voices were cut short by decades. Because had they lived on, had they survived, they could have been composing. They could have been teaching another generation of composers. So I feel, one, grateful what did survive. And, and in fact, you asked me, you know, what happened to these, you know, manuscripts? And so in the case of, for example, Ullmann, he left his critiques, his writings, and his musical manuscripts with a friend in Terezin when he went on his transport to Auschwitz which is very fortunate for us because had he had gone with Tim Tauschitz, it would have been destroyed. He was sent directly to the gas chambers. You have this, the artwork that you're looking at in the book. A lot of artwork was hidden in, in the uh, floorboards and in the walls of the barracks only to be reclaimed after liberation. And we go into the various stories of the recovery in the book. So, you have a treasure trove, not only in music, but in literature and in the visual arts, which we, we try to bring to you uh, through, you know, the experience of this book. 
Now, Mark, uh, I, I don't recall, even though I have read the book, did you meet in person with one or two survivors? And was this back in the 80s? Can you give us a, a time frame? Well, it was in late 80s, going on through the 90s, uh, up till today. All right. And, and in fact, I know throughout the book, because in, in my essays, I have sources that are survivors, what they experienced, and they also appear in the annotations. And then... And, there's the translation of the critiques. So I, I brought together a group of survivors who this, the, this was the German that they spoke growing up. It was the same German that Ullmann spoke and wrote in. And it was that to me, I thought was so important to um, try to capture the flavor of his writing all right, who he was. And, and so working with them over the years, and I mean, this took years to do because we would go through multiple drafts. And of course, the there's the art and science of translation. I mean, to take from one language to another and try to retain that flavor. Uh, it's almost an impossible task. I mean, we must do it. And in this case, the input I've been receiving on it has been incredibly favorable for this, right? For people saying, no, no, you, you, you've got the the language at that period, right? And I thought these these were people that either knew of Ullmann because they were in the camp with him, they had heard performances, they may have known his music. That I thought was a key component, but they were also just a great resource in my research. Um, and, you know, there's the archives that I went through because I, I spent my Fulbright scholarship researching. But this is, you know, the book is actually culmination of over 30 years of work. And I, you know, I had been wanting to write this book for a number of years. And I'm glad I kept putting it off because there was yet more information. And it changed the focus and, and how to come about a book that, you know, I wanted to avoid something, which was that, you know, the pitfall is you don't want it to be a dry accounting of history. And to me, Ullmann was my access point. He was my guide, right? Um, like in Dante's Divine Comedy, Virgil takes Dante through the stages. He takes him to his journey. Well, Ullmann is our guide. He takes us into that world. And then I can further add and elaborate in terms of the composer's backgrounds, their dates, what happened with their music. When Ullmann references a, a particular poet or a philosopher, or something historical, again, should be annotated just in case the reader is not so familiar with that. And, and boy, does that give you an insight into the intellect of Ullmann? Because here was this man writing or typing these critiques. And, you know, you see the facsimiles of each critique. And he's writing it in a concentration camp. So, one, technologically, forget it, we don't have a search engine, right? But the library... The library is it's it's in his memory, and what he was exposed to. Not only what he retained, but you know, just his breadth of knowledge, his intellectual curiosity, and and he weaves it in. There's nothing pretentious about this. I I think you you can attest to this when you're reading these critiques. You know, it, he's not trying to show off what he knows. It just flows seamlessly from one performer to another, from one performance to another. You could see his attachment and affection for and, and respect for his fellow prisoners and what they what they were doing. 
it's a real testament that is uh, that touches one on so many levels. Two points I want to bring up and summarize what you just said is your efforts to really have, number one, an authentic translation and your description of Victor Ullman. He's our guide into the terrorism world and the richness of, of everyone else that was there. So it's not just about Victor Ullman or his critiques. It truly is a 360 degree view of their lives. Uh, with really nothing left out. You know, there's the music, there's the culture, there's the horror, there's the daily threat of transport. So everything is covered in your book. And I think that's what makes it so valuable. Well, thank you. You know, you just made me think of something too in speaking about this. So if I asked you, you you read a review of a particular, we'll say show or concert that catches your attention. What is your expectation when you when you read a review that grabs your attention? What is the next step for you after that? I want to hope that uh, the person writing the review knows what they're talking about. And then if I'm excited or interested enough, I would want to see the show or the music or whatever. Right. And, and you hit the nail on the head. In this case, we can't go to those performances. But no, there is that relationship we have with a review. We read about it. It, it could even be the review of a restaurant. Oh my God, that, that sounds fantastic. Let's go and book a reservation. Oh, here's the concert maybe this week at the Boston Symphony. I want to hear that particular artist or that piece, right? So there is, is that ongoing contractor relationship that you can't have with these critiques, right? It, you, you can't go to it. So it, it leaves you wanting it's like oh if i could have heard these people later or if i could have heard record if they had been able to make recordings right so it gives you the, the sense of the loss it's and these are un, it's an unusual set of critiques because it's a record of something and then i think in turn what I'm, I'm i'm going on too long about it i think what i was really trying to get to is because you can't hold it because you can't go to it you value it that much more. And then the lesson is value what you can go to, value that what you can experience. Or there, there's something about that that he gives us as a lesson, if you will. He doesn't browbeat us with it, but it kind of makes you think, wow, I would have loved to have gone to that, but I'm grateful that there are things I can go to. So Mark, uh, I, I want to highlight what you just said and talk a little bit about the episode where they had Terrazin as a propaganda tool for the Red Cross as part of that. And I don't recall, were there actual recordings that we have today, any recordings of what occurred at Terrace? And in addition to, of course, contemporary people playing that music. So there are fragments of the propaganda film that survived, which, you know, the prisoners, and I have to emphasize this, they were forced to produce and participate in. And, just think for a moment of, of that, the, the psychological toll that it had to have taken on those people that uh, to try to give a picture of something that was the polar opposite of what they were experiencing. Uh, or to be a composer where there's a scene where Pavel Haas is standing, taking a bow after the performance of one of the pieces he's written. And the narrator says the work by a Jewish composer is being performed in Theresienstadt. So he writes this piece, not for the propaganda vehicle. He writes, he's a composer. And now it's being co-opted. It's being used to, to message something that is not only 
counter to his experience, but the, the experience and fate of those around him. And or the children are forced to be in it when they sing, you know, the finale from Hans Cross's children's opera Brundabar. And and you see little episodes of so-called life in, in, in Theresienstadt. The thing that I find most, most remarkable, I teach a course at Boston College uh, on art and music during the Third Reich. And we spend one lecture looking at the propaganda vehicle just through terrorizing. And I, my, my big question at the end is, what do you take away from this? What, what should be bothering you? And it's the idea that people are in a concentration camp and the Nazis are trying to make it look like they're living very good lives while the war is raging on across the continent, as if there's nothing wrong with being in a camp. And to me, that um, raises the red flag when you have um, you know, slogans like, for example, in, in our time, with Chinese government, with the Uyghurs, they are in rehabilitation camps. We are re-educating them. All these kind of catchphrases, all right? Why do they need to be re-educated? What are they being rehabilitated from, right? Oh, to think is to be criminal? So each in its own way, there are these the red flags. Um, you know, I, I, I look at with our will to live, my hope is that it's not only a documenting of what occurred culturally there, but it raises a further awareness of the world we live in and not only how we value art and how the arts play such a significant series of roles in our lives, but look on the other side with the oppressor, how things can be manipulated and how does that further attune our antennae to the world we live in? I think there's a lot of messages here that, yeah. that unfortunately ring true now, uh, very much so in many places of the world. I think that we've given our listeners some really good background on the book. I really hope that our listeners buy the book and read it. It is such a rich history. But uh, to end up this podcast, could you please talk about your Terrorism Music Foundation, what its goals are, and, and what you hope that it will do? So the foundation, in its inception, was very much focused on um, helping to preserve and champion the, the music of these composers and the history. And we then moved on from adding from there to adding on educational programs. So we have a national curriculum. We go into the schools. There are survivors that I do programs with. There are programs that I go in, whether it's in person or now with Zoom, I can do programs, you know, in different parts of the world where we look at art and music, not only in terms of the history with Terezin, but how does it connect in a contemporary context so we can look at issues of censorship and human rights. So we have the educational component as well. And in fact, I, I want to emphasize that because for your listeners, if they're interested in trying to have a Terezin Music Foundation program at their school or in their community center, they can get online at terezinmusic.org and they can contact us at info at terezinmusic.org. Uh, we have not only with our education programs that I mentioned with, just now, but with our Will to Live, that has its own offshoot of education outreach. Uh, we also produce concerts. There's the publications. And so that 
what we're dedicated to is looking at the richness of this chapter, this of this particular cultural community in a concentration camp, and to open it up for a forum for people to not only hopefully further enrich their their uh, musical experience, but what do they think about it? What what lessons do they gain from it? All right, we don't preach. It speaks for itself, you know, and I'm happy to talk about a variety of things, but the messaging, I don't like to take a stance on anything because I feel, let them speak for themselves. The art, the music, the determination, the courage of these artists speaks volumes. And each one has a different story. And there are aspects of their personalities that will touch us in certain ways. And for example, I may say to you, I'm so caught caught by caught up by the life of Pavel Haas, right? And you may find a special resonance with Ullmann or Klein. I'll give you a quick example with Pavel Haas. Here was a man who, um, before his incarceration, was married. He had uh, they had a, a baby daughter, and his wife wasn't Jewish, so they divorced in an attempt to. Um, shield the wife and daughter from being sent on transports, which successfully they were able to. But imagine for a moment, here is this man who is separated from his family and he never sees them again. And I find in his four last songs set to Chinese poetry, it's like a message in a bottle, if you will, to his daughter. And of course, I can be accused of reading into this, but being a parent, it has special resonance to me. What is it you want to, you know, your child to get to know of you? And if for Pablo Haas, he never got to know his daughter. He never got to see her grow up. She didn't get to know him through her stages of development. So there is a special resonance. Or then I look at Gideon Klein, that young composer, early 20s. My God, filled with promise. That meteoric figure that Ullmann refers to, all right? Conductor, composer, pianist, educator. That's astounding, right? And and then Prasa has his own story. Each has something there that touches us in a unique way. And then we have that music and art on top of it. When you add that mix, I think, wow, what a gift. And, you know, in turn, I have to say the, the added gift that I've received, I was lucky to grow up in the arts. And yet through Terezin, these artists, I gained a deeper appreciation for the arts I probably wouldn't have had. Really, what the power of art is, is not just, you know, the the music or the writing, whatever, but the power of art and the meaning in people's lives. Yeah. And, and to be able to take it around the world, you know, and, and I mean, I'll give you an example. When I was in Sarajevo, when the siege was finally lifted and I was at the music academy, which had been shelled. And to be with students and faculty members who would give accounts of how they risked their lives during that siege to get to the conservatory, to give a lesson, to take a lesson, to rehearse or try to play something. And I'm hearing language that's so similar to what I heard from survivors of what the arts meant to them. And, and then to share that with them and what I got in return, you know, and so the places around the world that I've been able to um perform in and to teach 
that cross fertilization. And I should add, add one other thing because you asked kindly about the um, Terrazine Music Foundation. Very important thing I'd like to think we're doing is commissioning works of young up and coming composers. And I came up with the idea that, you know, rather than a plaque, a building, and they each have their own importance. I'm not trying to diminish that. But for the case of these voices that were silenced, perhaps the greatest memorial would be to commission works of the next generation of voices to nurture those so they in turn will not be silenced. And so we commission works uh, with world-renowned artists like a Garrick Olson, Jefim Bronfman, right? Don Upshaw, to name a few. And, and they uh, work with us where we choose a composer and uh, the commission work is then guaranteed to be taken, you know, on their tours. And this is amazing because then, you know, they're, they're performing at some of the great venues around the world and they're guaranteed a great audience. So you get around that, you know, that old adage where they'd say you go to a t- contemporary concert and there are more people on the stage than there are in the audience. That's not going to happen, right? When you have, you know, um, a Garrick Olson or Fima Bronfman, for example, performing, you know, and that I think is just raising further awareness. We actually come full circle because when you asked me, you know, um, some time ago about atonality and I said the knee jerk reaction. And, you know, if you mentioned something that's just been written today, some people would be very interested and others would say, I'm not so sure. And we try to break down that wall. Open yourself to that new experience. You know, to me, it's no different than, hey, let's try that new restaurant. Or here's a cuisine I've never had. Let's try that. Let's see what that's about. And, you know, more times than not, you are pleasantly surprised and further enriched. And isn't that really what we're all after? The enrichment of one's life? And what that adds to us when the arts enrich us, it, it's at a spiritual level, ultimately, Mark. Oh, I, I feel that very strongly. Yeah. And what you do on your series, I mean, you are enriching the lives of your listener. All of your listeners, that you're taking them into the different worlds of people from different backgrounds and history. History is so important to us, right? And what you're doing with your series, you're enriching their awareness, so I, I feel very honored to be part of this. Thank you for the opportunity of sharing this. So uh, let's do a wrap up here. I do want to mention you and I both live in the greater Boston area. Can you talk a little bit about the event you have coming up in October? And I'll include a link certainly to the foundation site and other information. In oh, the thank you. Thank you very much. So the program is on Sunday afternoon at Symphony Hall on Sunday, October 16th. Uh, Jonathan Biss fantastic pianist, is going to perform works of Schoenberg, Berg, and Schubert. This is a tremendously rich program, all right? And I one, with Jonathan performing alone, I would show up, all right? But then also what he's playing, and these are works, his interpretive skills shine. They give so much to these works. And so this is a real experience. These are masters from Vienna. And then we also have the world premiere of one of our Terrazine Music Foundation commissions by Jeremiah Klarman. And that will be given by Coro Allegro and members of the Arneas String Quartet. 
So here we have yet a new work side by side with old masters. And, you know, having the Berg and the Schoenberg on, I'd like to think that if Ullmann was at this program, one, he would love to critique it. All right. And I'll take it a step further. I want to believe somewhere his spirit is in the hall with us during that program. And that is a program that would welcome his spirit. And so oh, I, I love how you describe that. That's beautiful, Mark. That really is. Thank you. So please, you know, contact us at uh, terrazinmusicfoundation.org. And uh, for <clears throat> this concert is extraordinary. And, and we also are giving the Terrazine Legacy Award to uh, Senator Markey and his wife, wife, Dr. Susan Blumenthal. So it's a really special program in the afternoon. And I really hope to see people come and join us for that. And I certainly hope you'll be there. Oh, without a doubt, I will be there. You know, I have to tell you, because I I sometimes consider myself a bit of a student of the Holocaust, but this is one of the most profound books I've ever read. Again, and we talked about it, dresses so many layers. And I'm just so glad I found out about Victor Ullman and that you and I had the chance to do this. And we might even do a follow-up podcast. There's so much more that we can talk about. Mark, do you have any final comments? I, I'm just really ever grateful for the opportunity of sharing this world to people. So thank you for that opportunity. Uh, can I t- say one thing about the book? Yes. Right? So this book uh, was designed and, and published by Steidel, Steidel Verlag in Germany. And Gerhard Steidel is known around the world for making the most beautiful art and photography books. So it was on my wish list could I you know, somehow get to Gerhard Steidel if we could make this book? Because the book was not only a testament to the artists and musicians of Terezin, but I wanted it also to hopefully stand as a work of art on its, on its own. And so working with Gerhard, here's a book that is so beautifully designed and the attention to detail, the type of paper is chosen, the ink. And when you open up the book, it has a, a certain, if you will, fragrance about it, the smell of the ink. I think you can attest to it. You open that book. Yes. It is not like just any other book, how it feels, all right, how it is laid out. This took almost four years to make this book. This was not a slapdash effort, all right, or like, here's the manuscript, you take it. I was very fortunate that I could work with Gerhard Steidel and making this happen. And going through the book, you know, you look at the design of it, the layout, how it flows. It To me, it is, I, you know, a person would probably say, oh, of course, it's his book. He's going to say this. But I look at it, it's a Steidel book. And when you talk to people who have, have a Steidel book, uh, in fact, it's a documentary that it's, the title is How to Make a Book with Steidel. <laughs> it's a great documentary. It gives you a, 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 the attention to detail. You can also, if you just type in ourwilltolive.org, that'll take you to that you could see sections of the book. And if you want to uh, purchase it, great. Uh, in fact, all proceeds of the book go to our education program. So uh, again, thank you for letting me be part of this. And um, I hope your listeners will not only go and delve into this book, then maybe they'll join us for the concert on October 16th. And we would love to be in your community for an education program if that's possible too. So thank you again. Thank you, Mark, so much. And again, I'm so glad that you were part of this series. And I, I think this interview held with the spirit of this series of amazing people hidden in history. And, and if people listen to this, 
Victor Ullman will no longer be hidden in history. Thank you. Thank you. You'll next hear Mark's brief discussion of Schoenberg's music style, and then at the very end of this episode, one last excerpt of music. Yes, and you know, this is a tricky thing to do because when you try to define any given art and try to do it briefly as you asked me to, right? (laughs) So, you know, for the listener, I'm going to turn it on its head in terms of defining it because there tends to be with some people when they hear Schoenberg or atonality, this knee-jerk thing of, oh my God, I I don't know that I can feel familiar with it or that I really want to hear this. Schoenberg would have said it's pantonality, that he is doing a 12-tone system. So if you looked on a, on a keyboard of a piano and in just one octave, it's a do, re, mi, fa, sol, each half step, there are 12 half steps in that octave. And so hence, Oman was drawing from that what she called his 12-tone system. He's being revolutionary, but, but even in being the revolutionary of breaking down an old system, he was creating yet a new discipline. And so for atonality, you have to hear, but even if when you hear within atonality, there are so many different signatures when you're listening to composers. So I come back full circle, and I think if Schoenberg was right with us in our conversation, he would say, no, 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 this is pantonality. Before playing the last musical excerpt with an introduction by Mark, I wanted to emphasize something he said earlier on. These composers had hoped that their music would live on, even if they did not. And you, my listeners, have justified their hopes from many years ago. Thank you. Gideon Klein was among the the great talents great musical talents in Terrazine. Uh, he was a, a man in his early 20s in the camp who was not only this most gifted pianist, but a composer, a conductor, and educator. In fact, there are survivors who refer to Gideon Klein as our young Leonard Bernstein. And what you're about to hear is uh, the slow movement from his string trio. It's a theme in variations The theme is actually a folk song um, that Gideon Klein's nanny sang to him in his childhood. And it's it's a very touching um, moment in in music, not only for the content uh, musically, but also the story is that a goose has been shot. And as she's descending to the earth, she's thinking, what will happen to her goslings? And here is Klein... He's been in Terrazine for a couple of years. And in fact, this particular string show is his very last work. It was completed just days before he was sent on a transport to Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. 